In Daniel chapter 1, the book that uh, begins uh, to tell the story of the people of Israel in exile in Babylon, it opens with uh, an introduction to Daniel and three of his friends. These are young men uh, of Israel who have been dragged away along with the rest of Israel to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan ruler. Uh, And they are given the charge or or the command to to eat the food that the king has placed before them. And the food likely has been sacrificed to false gods, to to pagan idols. And so there's a a compromise that Daniel and his friends see in, in, in eating the food that the king has placed before them. And so as the rest of the people sort of unquestioningly receive what the king has given. Daniel and his three friends, uh, who are renamed with Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak and Benny, for any of you VeggieTale fans out there, um, they alone stand against uh, this edict from the king to eat the food, eat the meat specifically that, that he has provided for them. And they, they say... Uh, We will not eat this food. And in fact, we uh, insist that you test us for 10 days, allowing us to eat only vegetables and only vegetables because they had not been sacrificed to gods in the same way that meat would have. I don't think there's a vegetarian versus uh, carnivore uh, debate to be had in this text. But nevertheless, they say for 10 days, let us eat only vegetables and not eat the meat that the, the king is offering And you'll see that we are uh, the better for it. And so sure enough, they allow that. And after 10 days, they find that Daniel and his three friends are uh, are stronger and and healthier uh, than the others who had eaten the the meat that the king had provided them. And so this 10 day period of testing, if you will, proved the the metal of their faith and and the reality that uh, the courage that it took to stand against the idolatry that the king was insisting upon and calling them to uh, met with God's approval and indeed God's strength. Now that story bears a striking, a striking relevance to the verses that we'll consider today in Revelation chapter 2. So we're not going to spend most of our time in Daniel, but I do want to begin there and then we'll see a little bit later uh, how that has a direct relevance to our Text. So turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. As this revelation uh, of the Lord Jesus to the Apostle John uh, through his angel has been unfolding, we've seen uh, the sort of prologue in chapter 1 uh, that, that introduced to us uh, John and the vision that he would receive from Jesus. He received a commission from the Lord to write down what he would see and send it to the churches. And he names seven churches in uh, cities in Asia Minor. And now in chapters two and three, each of those seven local churches receives a direct message from the Lord Jesus, from the risen Christ. And so he tells John to write to these churches these things. And so we get a, a window into the, the life of each local congregation that's named here, but, but more broadly than that, a sort of a sense of the health of the church uh, as a whole, and seven symbolically representing wholeness and fullness 
we see here a picture of how the church is doing. And we talked last week about Jesus' message to Ephesus, which was a a loveless church, a church that had been faithful in doctrine and discernment, but was without love. And Jesus had strong words of rebuke and correction for them. Today, in verses 8 through 11, we see the the message of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. I'm going to read to you these verses, and we'll consider them together as what the Lord would have for us to hear And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the story of an afflicted church. It's the story of a congregation under pressure, from neighbors and eventually from the authorities. And Jesus has words of encouragement and endurance for them. The Christians in the Roman Empire would face a a test of conscience that would be difficult to avoid. And there's a political and social context that I think we need to grasp in order to understand these verses well. And indeed, much of what occurs throughout the Revelation as it unfolds in the chapters to come. So by the time of the writing of Revelation, there have been over two centuries of Roman rule in Asia Minor. And uh, Rome had asserted its dominance and gained vast power and control by coercion and manipulation. Those few who had been brave enough to, uh, to confront the authority of Rome were mercilessly crushed into oblivion, uh, which included uh, a group of Jews who about uh, 30 years before the revelation was written, uh, who had attempted to uh, re- rebel against Rome. And uh, that resulted in the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of its temple in the year 70 A.D., That is within the near memory of the readers of Revelation. And those who would cooperate and pay proper tribute to Rome and its leaders were given uh, certain benefits like tax exemptions and protected travel and government-aided communications and and things like this. So by this time, uh, there is a strong loyalty to the Roman Empire among the cities of Asia Minor. It was recognized by this time you fall into line in order to enjoy the so-called Pax Romana, the the Roman peace, the the policies that would uh, protect them and and grant them a sort of uh, peaceable uh, existence so long as they sort of played along with all of Rome's demands. Now, one important element of loyalty to Rome, which would create an obvious dilemma for Christians, 
was participation in the imperial cult in which Caesar, the emperor, was to be worshipped as a god. Part of that tribute uh, to be paid, uh, part of the tribute to be paid uh, to the empire was a worshipful homage to the emperors and their children. And in fact, each city in Asia Minor to which John writes in, the, in these seven letters uh, features a prominent temple uh, for the worship of the Roman emperors. They had all uh, succumbed to this and, uh, and were playing along as Rome demanded. And playing along, indeed participating in this Roman imperial cult, uh, was uh, a requirement for even basic participation in social and economic life. For example, membership in the local trade guilds where they would do business with each other, buying and selling things, required participation in the imperial cult. In other words, worship Caesar or you can't do business. You can't buy and sell, which would lead to obvious economic troubles for those who would refuse to participate. And the empire at this point is so vast, it covers such a large territory that it was divided into regions that were overseen by local governors, local officials. Um, One such uh, local official that we see famously in the Bible is Pontius Pilate during uh, the, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, we read about Pilate sort of overseeing the the trial, if you will, of Jesus, which leads to him ultimately uh, handing him over to be crucified. Pilate was one such Roman governor who was uh, in Judea at that time. And so the the empire is divided into these uh, these local regions. So if a citizen of a city under Roman rule refused compliance with the empire's demands, which included participation in the imperial cult, these local officials would take corrective action, putting pressure on them to conform and to cooperate. Uh, political, therefore, political and economic uh, prosperity, oh, excuse me, no, in, in, in their view, right, in, in this sort of pagan, uh, false god-worshipping view, Uh, Political and economic prosperity in the empire depended on favor from the gods, right? You had to sort of keep the gods appeased in order to get what you needed and to have success and growth for your empire. And so every citizen was expected to play his or her part in appeasing the gods by these acts of religious devotion. So it wasn't just a power play. It was that. But it it was a religious belief that if we participate in these pagan worship rituals, then we'll, we'll uh, appease the gods, we'll invite their favor, and they'll continue to bless the Roman Empire with strength and health and money and power and all of these things. Ideas not totally foreign to any uh, earthly power. And so, in the course of everyday life, as a follower of Jesus Christ in any of these cities, You had a choice to make. Honor the emperor by participation in the imperial cult and effectively denounce Christ as king, adopting the worship of idols. Or be faithful in your devotion to Jesus Christ by refusing to pay worshipful homage to Caesar and thereby invite harassment from neighbors and penalties from the authorities. 
That is the situation into which the Lord Jesus speaks. Indeed, that's the situation across uh, the empire, across Asia Minor. And so that's the situation that all of these churches would be facing. But Jesus's message to the church in Smyrna indicates that the, the fires are beginning to get particularly hot beneath them. The pressure is increasing for this church. So as he writes to this church in Smyrna, he introduces himself as the risen Lord, the risen King. Look in verse 8. He says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, hopefully you'll remember that each of these messages to the churches, when Jesus introduces himself to that church, he draws on something from chapter one, something from the vision of the son of man that John received uh, when Jesus gave him the commission. And so here, if you were to look at chapter one, verse 17 and 18, you would see John responding to that vision of Christ. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. And here's what he said of himself. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That designation of Christ as the first and the last. And as the one who had died and has now risen and is alive forever. And who has the keys to death and Hades is what is intended to come to the mind of the church in Smyrna as they read the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That phrase first and last is a declaration of his utter sovereignty over the world and its history. I was here from the beginning. I will be here through the end. Everything that happens is from my hand. Tim Chester says it this way. Jesus had the first word in history. God spoke the world into being, and the word he spoke was Jesus. Remember the the Logos, the word of God, who was with God and was God. And Jesus will have the last word in history. Christ is before human empires, and he will outlast them. And so Jesus here would remind the church in Smyrna, the empire is not ultimate. The emperor is not the most important authority in your life. I was here first, and I'm going to live long past them. I am the sovereign over history. And then he reminds them that he's the one who died and came to life and indeed lives forever. Death no longer has dominion over him. He will never die again, says Paul in Romans. Christ, as the one who conquered death, assures the Smyrnans here that their suffering unto death, as he said in verse 10, will result in the crown of life. And their victory over the second death. So the immediate relevance of this particular designation of Christ is obvious to us, given the the context of, of the exhortation that he's to give them and the pressures that are to come. So he introduces himself. I am a sovereign over history and I am the one who is alive forevermore, holding the keys of death and hell. And he speaks to this church and identifies three challenges that they face. The challenges of poverty, of slander, and of persecution. Poverty, slander, and persecution. And there's almost certainly an organic connection between these three challenges. Their poverty 
may be a result of their exclusion from local trade because of their refusal to participate in the imperial cult. Christ commends them for their faithfulness and their endurance, which indicates they have not compromised. They have not bowed the knee to Caesar. And because of that, they have invited uh, the the economic uh, challenges and poverty that came into their lives as a result of that. They're left out of the basic economic mechanisms of their society as a form of pressure to coerce them into conformity. The slander from those who say they are Jews and are not, and we'll talk more about what that means in a minute, probably indicates that the Christians' Jewish neighbors have been reporting them to the local Roman authorities as insubordinate to the government. So the slander is not merely name-calling. The slander is probably tattletale, right? It's these guys are not participating the way that they're supposed to participate in order to get them into trouble. And uh, so so one thing to understand in light of that is that for some time, the Roman government has sort of given a pass to the Jews. It's just an arrangement that they've made because there were so many of them as they entered the the sort of region of of Palestine, et cetera. There were so many of them uh, that they, they sort of arranged, okay, as long as you guys pay your taxes and sort of participate in all the other ways, you kind of get an exemption from the imperial cult stuff. We don't expect you to pay homage to Caesar as long as you show yourself to be loyal citizens in every other way. And so the Jews have had a, a reasonable amount of sort of, uh, you know, just they're out of sight, out of mind for the most part uh, for the Roman Empire. And for a while, as Christianity was born, it, it seems that Christians were seen as something of a sect of Judaism. They were, and many of the, the converts to Christianity were Jews who converted to faith. In fact, the very first Christians were Jewish disciples of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, right? And so it, they were seen as very connected. So Christians were sort of like just, they're a, a group within Judaism, and so they kind of got left alone. But as Christianity grows, as it spreads, as it becomes more Gentile, in a sense, as other uh, nations and ethnicities are coming to faith in Christ, uh, Jewish hostility toward them sort of ramps up. And as the Jews start to to think of uh, the Christians as intolerable, uh, then they apparently began ratting out Christians to the authorities. So that's, I think, what is meant by this slander that they face from those who say they are Jews but are not. And that slander leads directly to persecution by their local government, including imprisonment and even death if they refuse to pay homage to Caesar. So I think that's the situation that's gone on here and the challenges of poverty and slander and persecution that they face is directly related to the church's faithfulness and courage to resist the call to pay homage to uh, a false god and to be guilty of idol worship. I want you to notice first the praise that Jesus gives to the church at Smyrna. It's, It's subtle. He doesn't go on and on about it, but it's there. He says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. But you are rich. Well, what does that mean? You just called them poor. Well, he's speaking here, of course, not of material riches, but of spiritual riches. 
They are economically disadvantaged, but by their patient endurance and their faithful testimony for Christ, they show themselves to be spiritually rich. It's the opposite of what we sang earlier. There's a line of God of grace and God of glory that speaks of, uh, of the danger of being rich in things and poor in soul. This is the inverse of that. These are those who, because of their faith in Christ and their courage to to bear witness to him, are poor in things, but rich in soul. And interestingly, contrasts with uh, what Jesus will say to the Laodiceans at the end of chapter 3, who think of themselves as rich. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And he says, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind and naked. So they thought of themselves as rich, but indeed were spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus says the very opposite to the church at Smyrna. You are poor and yet you are rich. In James chapter two, verse five, he tells us that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Those who are heirs of the eternal kingdom of Christ are rich indeed. In God's economy, often it's those who have the least who find their hearts fullest because of their union with Christ. I don't know if you've had the experience of being among people who had almost nothing but were joyful worshipers of Christ because their treasure is somewhere else. The treasure is in something better as those who live in an affluent society with a wealth of resources at our disposal, we would do well to heed Jesus' warnings elsewhere concerning the futility of storing up earthly treasures and the difficulty of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. David said in Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have, speaking of wicked people, than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's like I have nothing and they are succeeding, but you've given me more joy than the partiers because I have something better. I have something deeper, something more lasting. So we've got to ask ourselves, where's our joy? Where's our hope? Where do we find strength, comfort, peace? Do we find those things in Christ, in God's word, in fellowship with his spirit and his people? Or are you hoping to find hope and peace in the accumulation of material wealth or having a, a big savings account? May we be like the faithful Smyrnans who despise the wealth of the world for the sake of riches in Christ. So he speaks here of the slander. One of the challenges they face, uh, uh, apart from their poverty, is the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. First of all, why are the Jews slandering them? Right? Why, would, why would the Jews be slandering Christians? Greg Beale summarizes well. He says Jews would have viewed Christianity as a religion distorting the Jewish law and offering a perversely easy way of salvation. You're saying you don't have to obey all the law in order to be saved, right? That's scandalous uh, to, to the Jews. They also considered the Christian worship of a crucified criminal as the divine Messiah a blasphemy. 
Right? And so increasingly, the, the Jewish people, those who are uh, religious Jews con, uh, committed to the law, would have been uh, disdainful of their Christian neighbors for the way they were twisting uh, God's word in their view, the way that they were making a too easy path towards salvation and blaspheming against God by worshiping a crucified criminal. And so that gives some idea of why they may have been disdainful toward Christians. What does it mean that they call themselves Jews and are not? I think he's speaking a little bit metaphorically, kind of in a spiritual sense here. I think they are Jews. These are people who are ethnically Jewish, right? Descendants of Abraham. But I think what Jesus does kind of subtly here by saying, by by speaking of the riches of these faithful Smyrna Christians and calling those who say they're Jews but are not, I think he's indicating here that he regards the church as the true Israel, the true people of God. And in fact, that echoes uh, in all kinds of other places in the New Testament. John, Jesus himself in John chapter 8 uh, assured the Pharisees that they were sons not of Abraham, but of Satan because they did not believe in the one sent by the father. They were bragging, our father is Abraham. And he said, you do resemble your father, uh, but it's not Abraham, right? It, it's actually Satan. And they were, of course, very offended by that and put off by that. But Jesus regarded their, their, uh, their ethnicity, their descend, having, their, their having descended from Abraham as not granting them a special place. You don't believe in the Messiah, Who's before you and speaking to you, and therefore you are not of your father Abraham, right? Paul spoke of a similar reality in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he said, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, God's people are thus, not by genetics, but by faith. It became that simple. If you trust in God's Messiah, that is the Lord Jesus Christ then you belong to his people. You belong to Israel. You show yourself to be a son of Abraham, not by pointing to your birth certificate, but by pointing to your faith in Jesus Christ as his Messiah. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 2, we regularly see the language of Israel and the temple and the old covenant being applied uh, to the church taking these, these images of, of temple worship and things and applying them to the church as the, the temple being built into a new temple, a spiritual house for the dwelling of God. And so I think that's what Jesus is doing here subtly when he says those who call themselves Jews and are not. In other words, ethnically, they're Jewish. They could point to a birth certificate and say, look, we descend from Abraham. But he's saying, yeah, but they're not really mine. They're not really children of Abraham because they don't believe. And in fact, he says, they're a synagogue of Satan. They are actually doing the work of Satan in reporting them to the Roman government. Note, it's the devil who's going to throw them into prison in verse 10. The devil will throw some of you in prison. And so these Jews who do not recognize Jesus as Messiah and are now handing Christians over to the governing authorities are doing the work of the devil. So in light of these unfavorable circumstances, this is the situation in which the Smyrna Christians find themselves. Christ gives the church two commands and two promises. Two commands and two promises. Here are the commands. Number one, do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, he doesn't say do not fear because you're not going to suffer. He doesn't say do not fear uh, because the suffering won't really be all that bad. He says don't fear what you're about to suffer. And then he predicts for them. He, he, he warns them about the suffering that's going to come. The, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. You will have tribulation. And he says, be faithful unto death, meaning some will die. Right? Some of them are going to give their lives in, uh, in their testimony to Christ. Do not fear how in the world do you approach a season of suffering and persecution that you know is coming without fear. One way is to recognize that the purpose, that God's good and redemptive purpose in the suffering is for your testing. Look at this in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Wait, who's testing them? Satan? Is Satan testing them? God is testing them. Satan intends one thing. God intends another. It's a little bit reminiscent of the story of Job. Satan had all these wicked designs for Job. I'm just going to hurt him. I'm going to make his life miserable. I'm going to take away everything he has. And God allowed that in his sovereignty to come into Job's life. Why? So that he would actually be able to demonstrate that at the end of the day, he trusted in God and not in his stuff, not in his wealth. So you're about to be thrown into prison that you may be tested. Many of them will be imprisoned and some of them will be killed. And so in the sense that God has a purpose, a redemptive purpose in the suffering of his people, what Satan, Satan's plan to imprison and kill Christians will actually advance God's own purposes for them. Reminded of the words of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, that some of us read uh, earlier uh, last week. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. There's a dual purpose. There's a, there's a purpose of wickedness and a purpose of redemption in the, even the, the sins of others against us and the sufferings that we endure. Yes, Satan intends to harm you. Christ intends to test you. Christ intends to build something in you. We know from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God is building something in his people by their suffering. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 speak of, uh, of undergoing a period of trial so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to be more precious than gold. So it's an opportunity for God to grow faith in his people. It's an opportunity for the people to be tested and tried and to, to, to find Christ is enough for them in the midst of their hardship. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I'm testing you. It's for your good. It's for your growth. And he tells them for 10 days, you will have tribulation. We need to be careful, again, as we're reading the book of Revelation, not to take numbers literally. I don't think he's telling them that 10 calendar days will pass and then they'll all be let out of prison or they'll all be executed. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he means it's a definite period of time and perhaps it's short. 
it could mean that in the scope of things, in the scheme of things, it's not a long period of tribulation, but we're not exactly sure. But what he's saying here at least is it's not going to last forever. The suffering, the testing, the tribulation won't go on forever. And certainly in light of eternity, our present seasons of suffering are only a light and momentary affliction, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. And I also want you to see what what else this 10 days thing does. It also should call to mind the story from Daniel that we started with, where you have Daniel and his friends pressured to commit acts of idolatry by a pagan king who then were tested for 10 days, after which they were proven to be faithful and actually the better for their refusal to, uh, to obey the edict of the king. And so similarly, the, the Smyrna Christians are pressured to participate in Roman emperor worship and in their refusal to do so, and by then being ratted out by their Jewish neighbors, they will face a period of testing for 10 days. Imprisonment and possible death is what that testing may entail. And so as Revelation draws on the book of Daniel quite a bit, we've already seen some of that uh, in chapter 1 and in the, the, the vision of the Son of Man and how that par- paralleled Daniel 7 and some of Jan- Daniel's visions. Uh, it, it's not surprising to find little callbacks like this to the story of Daniel and while the people of Israel were in exile. There is a huge parallel between Israel in exile in Babylon and the church under in this time, in this century, under Roman rule, but throughout history, under any godless uh, earthly authority. There's a, a clear parallel that John will draw over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. And so I think he wants us to call to mind the, the strength and the courage and the faith of Daniel and his friends who were tested for 10 days. And so I think that's maybe the most pointed thing that 10 days is supposed to tell us. It's supposed to remind us Hey, I remember somebody else who was tested for 10 days in the face of uh, the, the pressure from a pagan king to give homage. And I think that Daniel connection sheds further light on what is meant by Christ's second exhortation. So the first one was do not fear, do not fear, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The second one is this, be faithful unto death, be faithful unto death. Faithfulness would mean refusing to participate in idolatry. Refusing to engage in the Roman imperial cult. Being willing to forego income and social standing. Even facing prison and an executioner's sword in order to maintain allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. That's what faithfulness means. Be faithful unto death means Remember, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, you represent Christ and Christ's kingdom, even if the powers that be in this world take your life. You be faithful even unto death. This is no small ask. Jesus doesn't promise them that they'll escape from suffering. Quite the opposite, in fact. He's telling him, you will suffer. Or even that he'll keep them from being killed. For their, if, if you'll be faithful, just for a little while, I promise, like you'll get out. They're going to release you from prison. It's not going to be that big a deal. Just a few days and then you'll be all right. That's not what he says. He says, some of you, 
are going to die. Be faithful unto death, up to and including death. He calls Christians to faithfully represent him as ambassadors in the kingdoms of this world, even if it means that we lose our lives because of it. Would you be willing to stand for Jesus if your life depended on it? In our time, in our country, that is still a largely theoretical question. We're not yet under that kind of pressure. There are places in the world where Christians are and have been under that kind of pressure. And to profess Christ is to be abandoned by family. It's to be imprisoned and maybe even to be killed. Would you be willing? Would you count your life as precious and forsake Christ? Or would you, as Luther said, let good and kindred go this mortal life also? I want to read you some words from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes to uh, an audience of largely Jewish Christians who, who have undergone similar sufferings and pressures. Chapter 10, verse 32, he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means you came to faith in Christ. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And the chapter concludes, but, in, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The one who will stand against the pressures of the day, harassment from neighbors, persecution from government, and say, I belong to Christ He is my king. Do to me what you will, will receive the endless kingdom of Christ. Do American Christians today face similar pressures? Certainly not to this degree, not yet. But I think you can see the seeds of it. Adapt your theology in certain areas or face consequences. Equality act and things like that. You need to change what you think, get in line, get on the right side of history, right? Adapt your, your theology. Calls from uh, so-called conservative Christians to, to fight to the death for your preferred political outcome, right? If your presidential candidate doesn't win, then let's take it back. If you say, you know, come on, it's not like we're being asked to bow down to a statue of an emperor or something. Have you seen... Uh, pictures from a recent uh, conservative event where there was literally a golden statue of Donald Trump. We're maybe not all that far off, friends. Don't succumb. Be faithful, even unto death. So those are the commands. Don't be afraid of what you're going to suffer. Be faithful unto death. Here are the promises. 
Two precious promises from Christ. This is what gives you the metal. This is what gives you the strength and the courage and the grit to stand when the pressure is on. Number one, I will give you the crown of life. Verse 10, right in the middle there, he says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Here it is. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. That is what it means to receive the crown of life. It means to receive the reward of life forever in the presence of God in his kingdom. The most important aspect of this promise is the assurance of eternal life after mortal death. And it's a good reminder to us that as Christians, we believe not just in life after death, like there's something else in the great beyond, but that the life we will live after our death is actually the most fundamental and important life there is. This life is just a precursor to life after death. Eternal life is life. That's the life that he has planned for us. That's the life that he has in store to give to his people as a gift. This life is just a rough, rocky pathway to get us there. That's what we believe. An incredible reality that must never diminish in its wonder. We have been given the promise of an endless joy in the eternal presence of God in his kingdom. Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life in his efforts to reach an unreached people group, famously said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your life. You can't keep your wealth. Give it up for the sake of Christ and the eternal kingdom is yours. The crown of life is yours. The second promise is this. You see it down in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is mentioned only here and then in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. If you were to flip to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then skipping ahead to verse 14 of that same chapter. He says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In chapter 21, verse 8, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the second death is clearly a reference to punishment in hell. It is eternal punishment in the place that God has uh, created and established for the purpose of punishing sinners for all eternity and the devil and his angels. Those who endure faithfully in their profession of Christ, never bowing the knee to social and political idolatries, will not have to face the second death. Instead, they'll be given the crown of life. You'll be kept safe from the second death. In fact, our path would be the very same as our king. 
who endured hatred and persecution from the Jews, his own people, leading to his arrest and execution by the Roman government, and who has now been raised to life, never to die again. And amazingly, his resurrection becomes the seed of our own. Because Jesus Christ died and came to life, so one day will all those who place their faith in him as their savior and their king. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, his resurrection becomes your resurrection. His story of suffering and death and endless life becomes your story. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be tribulation in this life. Yes, we will die. But we will not be harmed by the second death. We'll be kept free from the wrath of God and given the crown of life. Friends, trust in Jesus Christ alone. And this is the promise that you receive. We started out today talking about the courage of Daniel and his three friends in Daniel chapter 1. And their courage was put to the ultimate test in chapter 3 in a story that you probably know where Nebuchadnezzar has uh, built a giant golden statue of himself and commands everybody at a certain time to come out into the public square and to bow down and worship to this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. You wouldn't be surprised to learn that Daniel and his three friends refused to do so. And Nebuchadnezzar is none too happy about it. So he calls them before himself, furious, and he questions them. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And then he reminds them of the warning. If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm so glad you asked that question. Who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Here's what they say. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know how the story ends. The three are thrown in to a furnace that is so hot it kills the servants who put them into it, right? That's how much they've stoked this fire. They can't even get near it to put them in without themselves being burned to death. But when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, expecting to see the men being burned to a crisp, he instead sees the three of them unbound, walking around in the fire and unharmed. And there's a fourth man in the furnace with them. Nebuchadnezzar says, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Friends, we have no guarantee that our lives will not be marked by suffering and persecution. If persecution because of our Christian witness leads someday to the threat of death, we have no guarantee that we'll be spared that cost. But we do have a promise. The son of God will walk through the furnace with us. And just as he was raised to life and lives forevermore, the only thing death can really do to us is hasten us on toward the crown of life.